anyone look at the content from Tuesday? <laughs> yes. Okay, you know how you're, I was kind of confused, like, you know how you're talking about the access to and you said there are six degrees for you? Yes, yes. When, I know with rotation, it's the perpendicular access to the plane right. that moves around. If, when it's transfer, like translational movement, mm -hmm. is it like just relative to the plane, with like, or relative to the axis with the same name? Um, it will be relative to sorry, anatomical positions. So it'll be anterior, posterior, medial, lateral, superior, inferior. So that'll be the translation. So that's the three degrees of movement. Right. Does it go with any axis? Like, are you um, it gets confusing, so don't worry about okay. that. Just worry about the anterior, posterior, medial, lateral, and superior, okay. inferior. Yes? Okay. Right, your arm is rotating in the transverse plane about a superior inferior axis. Superior. Correct. Which is the long axis of the humerus in anatomical position. Is that clarified? Does it change when you go up It does change when you go out of that position. Even though it's rotation Correct. Because you're changing the axis of rotation because your humerus is going into a different plane. So in this position, what plane is my axis in? Medial lateral, right. Because it's a medial lateral axis, which is the orientation of my humerus. What plane is, it in? What plane is that one in? That'll be the frontal plane, okay. but the axis is a medial lateral axis because that's the orientation of my humerus in that position. Remember, the longitudinal axis stays the same relative to the long bone, but if you move in different planes, then you're going to describe it differently. Another Sorry, I'm confused on why. Like, I know this movement is in the frontal plane, but if you're no, it's the axis that, so she asked what would that axis be? So it's the, the axis is in the frontal plane, but it's a medial lateral axis, which is in the frontal plane. The axis is in the frontal plane. Correct. Okay. But the movement's in the sagittal plane, right? Okay, I think. No, the movement is not in the sagittal plane. the medial lateral axis, oh. That just really confused me. I think it's because we were told that all rotation is in the um, one plane, so. I didn't know it could change planes. Rotation can change planes. So are the rotation, the planes that you go in can be different depending on the position of the body. And just deal with one body segment at a time because I think there's some confusion. Right. When you have your elbow bent, you think this is the sagittal plane, but we're not looking at the forearm. We're looking at the rotation of the humerus. So that's where you guys may be getting confused with the sagittal plane movement. We're not looking at the movement of the forearm. We're looking at the movement of the humerus. So if I was out here, and I was externally rotating. Does that take away the confusion related to the sagittal plane? Yes. Okay, good. Was there another question in the back? Yeah. Um, I was a little bit confused on the Poisson effect. Poisson effect? Yes. Okay. It could be poison depending how long you look at it. <laughs> um, so that is related to the stress-strain curve, and I'm going to talk about that for a second as well here. Um, so do you understand it related to the tensile forces, which is what we spend most of the time on this, uh, that big graph? So the Poisson effect is the relationship, it just is when, so this green box is the original size of that tissue, and then as you pull it longitudinally in this picture, it's going to decrease in height and width. So that's the Poisson effect, it's just a relationship, the change in the volume um, as you apply a tensile force.
And one thing that I didn't um, speak to very well, and I wanted to just come back to that, is the type of stress. So we talked about the different types of forces, uh, tensional forces, shear forces, compressive forces. Um, and when I talked about stress, I didn't specifically state that stress is the tissue's reaction to the forces placed upon it. And so I wanted you guys to, I wanted to remind that and come back to say that stress is how the tissues react to the types of forces that are acting upon it. So how would you correct that diagram going by that definition? Say that again. I, I'm confused by your question. Well, since Dr. Wassinger defined what he's talking about for stress, then how would you change that diagram to clarify it? Correct. Exactly. So the arrows are showing the type of forces that are being applied to those tissues. The stress is the body's reaction to the forces. So you're going to invert the arrows, as he was saying, or you could just put them as reverse. So the tensional stress is going to be coming in from the tissue. So it's going to be the tissue's response to those forces. So all those arrows should be in the opposite direction inside the tissue or inside the boxes in this diagram. But the reality is, Dr. Washington talked about this, a lot of times people throw around these terms very loosely. So you're still going to read as if it's the load and not the stress. But biomechanically speaking, what he gave us is the correct definition. Like I said, PT terminology is confusing and overlapping. And lots of times folks don't agree. Yes? Sure. So stress is the tissue response to the forces placed upon it. So it's how the tissue reacts to whatever type of force is placed against it. External forces alone. Right. So when I have uh, a compressive force, so this is a bone that's being compressed, the stress is going to be actually, it's this arrow here, it's going to be the stress, so it's going to be the resistance against that compression. So it's basically the equal but opposite reaction. Similar to, yes, exactly. So it's the reaction to the force. And we're going to talk about Newton's laws today. But that'll be the third one. Third. Any other clarifications from Tuesday? I know Tuesday was a lot of material, and today is also going to be a lot of material, and it's a lot of, it's kind of like a vocabulary lesson, because it's just lots of terms that are getting thrown at you and defined and trying to be related. And it'll make more sense as we keep going forward, but without providing you the definitions, when I go forward, it doesn't make any sense to just jump into things. So it's a couple, few lectures of introductory material, content, vocabulary, and then when we start applying it, hopefully it'll make more sense. But I want you guys to be as clear as possible for now, so that when we go forward, you're still as clear as possible. Okay. Um, on D2L, did you guys see the lab sections list? And was everyone able to get access to D2L? Both everyone in the class can get access to D2L? Okay, so um, we sorted that out. And then I just created a lab sections list, so if you guys don't know what it is, um, we just I just broke it down into, I don't know who's responsible for what, but half of you guys are Tuesday, half of you guys are Thursday. And once that loads, you guys can take a look at it, but lots of people have class starting at 1, so it takes a little while. Uh, oh, here we go. Um, so find your name on those lists and go to the appropriate labs. And next week we'll have Tuesday morning lecture and split labs Tuesday and Thursday labs. So next week you're going to go to lecture. Everyone's here for lecture on Tuesday next week and then to your appropriate lab based on this 
list as to what section you guys are enrolled in. Okay. Um, did anyone try and download the podcast? Anyone have a problem with that? Okay. I don't. Okay. It won't transfer to your iPod. Yeah. I'm probably too smart for your iPod. <laughs> yeah. Mine acted kind of funny, but I powered it down and then uh, instead of doing Wi-Fi, okay. So yeah, I don't know. Okay. So it's actually on your iPod then, or whatever you're playing it off of. Okay. Um, so if you guys have questions, find someone that figured it out already. Um, if you have any real questions, you can come to me about it. It's fine. I don't download them because I listen to myself too often. Um, but if you do have any questions or problems with that, just stop down my office. And if you have a laptop, we can try and figure it out. All right. Any other questions? Concerns? Good deal. So uh, there's two lectures for today. We may not get through all of it depending on how quickly I talk and how many questions you guys have, and that's not a problem. Um, so like I said, today's going to be another sort of vocabulary introductory lesson to biomechanics. We're going to talk about those things up on top there. Course-related objectives, again, that's from your syllabus. Sometimes they have a small font, sometimes they have a big font. Um, so within a basic mechanics sort of definition type thing, there's are different types of quantities. One of those is a scalar, and that's a quantity that only has a magnitude. Um, examples of this are mass, energy, power, mechanical, work, temperature. Um, and those differ from vectors, which have both a quantity, uh, magnitude, and direction. Um, examples of those are force, moment, velocity, and acceleration. Now, that's a little bit confusing. So a vector, I can have a force applied in a direction. So a force has a, both a magnitude and a direction. I, I can apply a force you know, to my right. So there's a force that I'm applying and a direction associated with that. Um, it doesn't make sense to have a force without a direction applied to it. As opposed to temperature, where if I have a temperature applied to my right, that doesn't make any sense. So temperature has a magnitude only, so that's, that's a scalar quantity, and a vector quantity has both a magnitude and a direction. Um, so that's sort of the difference between those two. And when you work with vectors, because they have a magnitude and a direction, you can, what's known as construct these or resolve these, which means they add and subtract them together. Um, it's going to depend on the magnitude and the direction which you're looking at, um, and all force vectors act through the center of mass, which we'll talk about in a little bit here. But center of mass is essentially where the mass is centered around a certain segment. And by segment, I mean a body part. So here's a patient you have in your clinic, and he is sitting on the edge of the plinth. And there's some mass or some weight associated with his shank, which is his foot and his shin. Um, and that weight is going to be centered at the center of mass, which I just put in wherever that arrow starts. And that weight of the shank, because it's a vector quantity, has a magnitude, which is the weight of his leg that you would measure, or the mass. Uh, and it has a direction, because gravity is pulling it down towards the center of the Earth. So it has a weight, um, which has a magnitude, whichever how much it weighs. And then it has a direction based on the effect of gravity pulling it down. So it's going down toward the floor, or toward the center of the Earth. Now, if I were to put 
an ankle weight or a cuff weight on his ankle as represented by that blue block there. So I wrap a weight around there, a cuff weight, that also has a certain amount of mass associated or weight associated with it. And also because it's attached to his leg and he's in the gravitational field, it's going downward due to the pull of gravity. So both of those vectors are going in the same direction and they have different magnitudes. But because they are going in the same direction, I can add them together to get the total weight of that segment, including his shank and the weight that I put on his ankle. Does that make sense? So I'm adding the vectors, or I'm constructing the vectors and putting them together to get a total quantity or total magnitude, which because they're in the same direction, you just add them together. Is everyone okay with that? You can also resolve vectors, so that means you're going to break them into component parts. Um, and these component parts can also be added or subtracted. Um, has anyone ever seen a setup similar to this? Where did you see that? It looks like a traction device. It is a traction device. What's the, what's the idea behind a traction device? Uh, to decompress the spine. Right. It's right there at the neck. Yep, so exactly. So what this is doing, this is taking some of the weight off or decompressing the cervical spine or the neck. So someone that has a neck injury, um, lots of patients will like cervical traction, which we'll teach you guys in the summer. Um, but folks that have neck problems are often get pain relief with traction. And you can do it uh, mechanically like this, where you had, so this is a counterweight. There's obviously a water bag here, a couple pulleys. Um, or you can do it manually. You can use your hands to do the same thing. Um, so in this example, the individual has the weight of their head pointing straight down again due to, due to gravity. And that's going to have a certain mass associated with it, however much their head weighs or however much matters in their head. And that arrow is going to be pointed directly down. Now this traction unit, it's going up, but it's going up at an angle. It's going up vertically. So we have to resolve to see what components of that distraction force or this red arrow is going vertical and what is going horizontal. So we're going to zoom in on that component there, and so you have this water, um, the force of the water, the force of the weight of the traction pulling up at, some of the, at somewhat of an angle, and there's gonna be a vertical component associated with that and a horizontal component associated with that. And so you can add these two together, so we're breaking this down, um, so it ends up forming a right triangle, if you guys can see that. So if I shifted this arrow over here, I have a right triangle. And so the longest portion is gonna be the hypotenuse, Shortest, shortest component is going to be the um, horizontal, and then the medium component is going to be the vertical. But only the vertical component is going to counteract the weight of that individual's head, because that's the only part that's pulling up. This part that's pulling anterior relative to that individual isn't going to affect, isn't going to apply traction to that person's neck or to that person's cervical spine. So once you break it down. You have the weight of that individual's head, which is, we're going to say, less than, excuse me, more than the weight of the water. So the weight of the water is lifting up, but it's not heavier than that individual's head. So it's lifting up, and only part of the resultant vector is actually vertically oriented. So I just took that component that was vertically oriented, and I'm ignoring the component that's horizontally directed there. And then you get a total, which is essentially this magnitude minus this magnitude because they're opposite directions. So I'm decreasing the weight. What I'm doing is essentially decreasing the weight of that individual's head 
by the weight of the water held within that traction bag. Is everyone okay with that? So this is really commonly done in the clinic. There's different types of units that you can use to do this. Um, but looking at the vectors and how they can add and subtract, decrease and affect the amount of weight that you have on that individual, um, or the amount of traction that you apply can change. Now, given that, how could I decrease the amount of traction this person has by using the same setup? Exactly. So if I were to move this patient further away, what's going to happen to the line associated with the vertical component? It's going to decrease, right? So the vertical component of the traction unit is going to decrease, and therefore the amount of traction or the amount of separation of the joint surfaces, your total weight is going to increase because you're having less traction force on there. Conversely, if I were to put her directly below this pulley, so that the weight of the water was all acting superiorly, my traction force would increase and she would have more distraction and more of a pull on her neck. And that's all based on the angle and the amount of the mass of the water or the force of the water that is pulling vertical um, relative to the pulley and where she is sitting or standing. Pulleys are used quite a bit in rehab PT um, arenas. And there's two different types of pulleys and there's lots of different types of pulley systems. Um, but we're gonna talk about two different pulley systems as demonstrated here. And one is a fixed system and one's a movable system. Um, and these have implications for training and rehab, which we'll talk a little bit about in the next slide. But the idea behind a fixed pulley, like this one here on your left side, or the one that we have here, so these are fixed, meaning they're not going to move, the idea behind both of those, all they're doing is changing the direction in which the force is applied. So when I'm trying to, in this picture, I'm trying to use this weight to lift or take some of the weight of her head off, so I'm trying to get the vertical component of that. In order for me to do that, I need to change the direction of the force because the force is pulling down. So I just use a pulley. In this case, I use two pulleys to get it to pull up. So I'm just changing the direction in which the force is applied. Normally, that force the force of this bag is going down due to gravity, but I want to change that direction, so I use two pulleys, and now the force is pulling along the line of that arrow. So with a fixed pulley, all you're doing is changing the amount of force within the system that um, you need to move a specific mass. So here I have a 10 kilogram mass, and I have a fixed pulley, so it's attached to that ceiling there or whatever, it's not going anywhere. And if I'm going to move that mass, it's going to use, utilize 10 kilograms of my force to do that, because all I'm doing is change the direction that I'm trying to move it. Whereas if I have a movable pulley, so now I have a pulley here and it's movable because it's fixed on one end and not fixed on another end, so I'm going to be pulling from this end, this end is fixed, and the pulley can move up and down trying to move the same mass. So I have the same mass, 10 kilograms, but now I have two components trying to lift that 10 kilogram mass. And so the force that I have to apply is half, it's only five kilograms to move this weight or this mass up because there's two components that both of the sides of the rope are trying to pull it up, so that's going to be distributed equally among those. So when you have a movable pulley system, and we're going to keep it simple because you can get into multiple pulleys and then you can do all this crazy division and stuff, but basically if you look at a movable pulley, the number of movable, movable pulleys divides your force you needed by two. 
to move the same amount of mass. So for this 10 kilogram mass, I can divide that by two and I only need to use five kilograms of force to move that 10 kilogram mass because both sides of that rope are assisting in that, um, the lifting of that mass. And within a clinical setting, there's lots of different uses for pulleys in physical therapy. You can get Chuck Norris to come into your clinic and give you a demonstration in the total gym. Um, and in this system, as well as this system, essentially you're doing some sort of resistance training and you're utilizing the pulleys to change the angle of pull. So in here, you're lifting, um, you're lifting weights up this column and you're just using these pulleys to change the direction of your pull. So for these, for this one and for this one here, you have pulleys attached to the sled which you're attached to and you move your arms or your legs and you slide yourself up and down that sled. But both of those are just changing the direction of pull. So the mass of Chuck Norris is the mass that he's pulling with his arms. Whereas if I had a movable pulley system, the mass of Chuck Norris that he's pulling would be half of Chuck Norris, which is still way more awesome than the rest of us. <laughs> Right. Um, also very commonly in the clinic you'll use pulleys to increase shoulder range of motion. So this hand is facilitating elevation of this hand by pulling down. Again, you're just changing the direction. So using the pulley to change the direction. And here you have a traction unit where this individual probably has a femur fracture and you're trying to separate those bones so you don't have any more soft tissue damage, usually while you're waiting surgery. So you come in, you burke your femur. Um, they're going to put you into, they could put you into a traction unit. And so what you see here, they have sort of a sling system designed to hold the leg up. And then here is another pulley system and there's a, a bunch of weights there that are pulling traction or applying a distractive force to the leg so that you have minimal soft tissue damage where that femur fracture is. Probably not too comfortable. Um, and this looks like, kind of looks like third world country a little bit, um, but I don't know. So. They still do this today. When I was working in acute care in Idaho, we had um, folks that would come with femur fractures and it would be a mad rush to get the traction system set up. So we'd have to set up the bars across the top and they'd be drugged up and we'd get some weights on there and usually start with, I think it says in there, 10% of their body weight until you give them some relief if they have pain associated with that. And usually they're going to be on drugs also. So pulleys are used a lot um, in the clinic. And I just want you to understand the two different pulley systems, fixed and movable, and how you can utilize that um, to manipulate moving masses. So if you want to think you're really big and strong, you can hook up like a pulley system like this and put 200 pounds on there and start doing something that makes you look really strong and you're actually moving half of that mass. But you know, the girls walking by don't look at all that weight on there. They don't know the difference. <laughs> but I mean, except for the girls in here because then they do know the difference. So then you just look stupid. <laughs> all right. Again, so a set of more vocabulary type stuff. Any questions on pulleys? If there's any questions whenever, just stop me. I'd like to stop and check, but raise your hand whenever it's not an issue. Um, so static linear equilibrium. Now we're looking at the application of forces to the body. And in this diagram, we have an external force, which is the weight of gravity acting on your forearm and your hand. And that external force, again, is directed downwards due to gravity. You also have an internal force which is associated with your muscles. Um, so this muscle is contracting. If it wasn't contracting, then your forearm would go into elbow extension, right? So you have some force that's 
being pulled through your muscle here, resisting that, and when there's no movement, then you're in a position of equilibrium, meaning that you're stable in that position. There's no movement in either direction. Um, and there's also a, a joint reaction force associated with that. So as the muscle pulls up, force of gravity um, coming down through the upper arm and the force of the muscle pulling up has a joint reaction force. And we'll talk about these things in much greater detail moving forward, just kind of sort of bring you guys up to, to speed on this little diagram here. Now, some people, again, this is PT terminology, gets confusing. So forces and torques are similar and people use them interchangeably inappropriately. So a force is different than a torque, but clinicians, I'm probably going to use it wrong while I'm up here at some point in time today, use them inappropriately all the time. So a torque is a force that acts at a distance from a joint with a moment arm, and we'll talk about that. So a force acts at a distance from the axis of rotation of a joint, an angular motion may occur. So we'll start with force. So a force acts at a distance from the axis of rotation of a joint, angular motion may occur. Using this diagram, so we're going so to look at the muscle force. We have the muscle force acting at some distance from the axis of rotation. So there's a distance between where this muscle for force is acting on the bone and the axis of rotation. That distance is known as the moment arm. And it's the internal moment arm because we're talking about an internal force. Um, but when it does act at some distance from that axis of rotation, angular motion may occur. Meaning that I could, if I contract this muscle, I can flex my elbow. Or I can lift my forearm up toward my humerus. Torque is the magnitude of the resultant force and times the perpendicular moment arm. So, that's fine, we can stay here. Um, so internal torque is going to be the force, or the magnitude of the force of this muscle times the internal moment arm, that distance there. The external torque is going to be the external force, so the effective gravity on the forearm, times its moment arm, so that's the external moment arm from the axis of rotation to the center of mass where it's applied to the forearm there. And because you're in a position of equilibrium, meaning my forearm is not moving, my internal torque is equal to my external torque. Which means that my muscle is applying just enough force through this moment arm, which makes it a torque. So it's applying just enough torque to limit my arm from falling, but not too much torque that I'm flexing my elbow. So I'm just maintaining this position. So those two are equal. That's a position of equilibrium. Is everyone okay there? Who's seen torques and forces and moment arms before? Good. If I'm going too fast, let me know. If I'm going too slow, bear with me. So a torque is a force produced by a muscle that has a moment arm, which, which allows it to be a torque, and it has the potential to rotate the joint or the segment, the body segment. A force produced by a muscle that lacks a moment arm will not cause torque or rotation. So here we are the same diagram again. And if my muscle was acting at the axis of rotation, meaning it does not have a moment arm, I cannot produce any rotation. And so if my muscle was acting along the long axis of the humerus and I had a contraction which goes along that line, no rotation is going to occur at the joint. What's going to occur at the joint? 
no movement. Compression. Compression, right. So you're going to have compression at that joint surface. So if this muscle force is acting on the ulna, and I apply a force that acts through the axis of rotation, I'm going to have compression of the ulna into the distal humerus. But no rotation is going to occur, meaning the forearm is going to stay at that angle, 90 degrees of elbow flexion. Okay, types of muscle activation. What is the definition of an isometric muscle activation, muscle contraction? What is the same length? Uh, the length of the Correct. So the length of the muscle does not change in an isometric contraction, which means that, which means what related to joint movement? Who said that? Was it? Said no, motion. no motion occurs at a joint. Correct. So isometric contraction, uh, length of the muscle does not change. No motion occurs at the joint. What about a concentric contraction? Muscle length shortens. And then what happens, for example, if muscle length shortens in um, the forearm example, so we're talking about the biceps, what happens to the elbow joint angle? There's flexion at the elbow. Um, so you have shortening in the muscle. And in the forearm example, we have flexion at the elbow. Eccentric contractions? Muscle lengthening, correct. And then if we had an eccentric contraction of the biceps in that example, what happens to the angle of the elbow? You go in toward extension, correct. So here's a little diagram. Isometric contraction, muscle contracts but does not shorten. There's no movement. Concentric contraction, the muscle shortens and you have movement towards flexion like we talked about. Eccentric contraction, you're lowering that weight, so you're lengthening the muscle, you're lengthening your biceps, and you have movement towards elbow extension. Yes? Does it have um, anything to do with gravity? I know we learned before, it was like one is against, one's with gravity. Um, it's related to gravity, but I wouldn't say that one is against and one is with gravity. I mean, I guess if you think about this example here, your concentric contraction, you're going to be shortening, so you're going to be lifting this weight against gravity. And in this situation down here, you're going to be lengthening, so you're going to be resisting gravity, but it's the amount of the weight is going to be overcoming um, your contraction. So, I don't know if it clarifies or not, but is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Additional muscle action, so we're going to talk about each of the different types of these muscles. So an agonist muscle is just defined as a muscle or a muscle group responsible for any particular movement. So if I say the agonist to elbow extension, that's going to be your triceps. The agonist to elbow flexion can be brachialis, coracobrachialis, biceps, any of those muscles. So the agonist is just the muscle that's causing joint movement, whereas the antagonist um, Antagonist muscles are opposite, so these usually work in pairs, but the antagonist muscle will be the muscle responsible for the opposite movement. So if my biceps are the agonist muscle for elbow flexion, my triceps are the antagonist muscle to my biceps because they act as elbow extenders. Synergist muscles, so these are two or more muscles which initiate the same movement. So my biceps um, and my brachialis both act 
to flex the elbow. So those are synergist muscles. And then there's force couples. Um, the definition of force couple is two or more muscles which act together to provide stability or movement at a joint. So this is my little diagram. So this is your shoulder, and there are four muscles which act at the shoulder known as the rotator cuff, and we're going to talk about those. So each of them have their own individual actions. So your subscapularis acts to internally rotate the humerus. Teres minor and infraspinatus both, both act to externally rotate the humerus. Now if you look at that, the subscap is going to have a relative anterior pull of the humeral head, so it's going to translate the humeral head anteriorly. Infraspinatus teres minor are going to have a posterior translation of the humeral head within the glenoid, within the, the socket there. But if you look at where those muscles are, sorry. So those two are relatively balanced to one another. Subscap's going to be a little bit stronger than your external rotators combined. Um, so you're going to have some balance anterior to posterior. But if you also look at how they work, you're going to see that those rotators act below sort of the equator of the glenoid. And because of that, not only do they have an anterior pull and a posterior pull, but they also have an inferior directed pull. And so that acts as a force couple when these work together to provide an inferior pull of the humeral head. And what that does is it limits impingement um, or rotator cuff tendonitis superiorly when you have a contraction of the deltoid muscle. We'll talk about this more specifically with the shoulder. Um, but you have two more muscles working together. So these three muscles work together to provide an inferior force, which isn't the primary motions of each of those muscles. But when they act together, they provide an inferior force so that you have the humeral head maintaining itself within the center of the glenoid and you don't have impingement of the shoulder. And so that has to resist, this, resist the superior pull of the deltoid. Um, so you're trying to get an anterior-posterior equilibrium and a superior-inferior equilibrium. But the force couple is when these muscles work together to give you that inferior pull. Productive antagonism is a, uh, it's a model of two antagonistic muscles when acting on a specific task provide active and passive assistance to the task. Um, so here's a model of one muscle, so two muscles that are somehow attached to a hammer. And you're trying to use this hammer to do what hammers do and that's hit nails. So in order to shorten this muscle, I'm going to have a contraction here in order to pull my hammer back. And then, in order for it to swing down, I'm going to contract the second muscle to facilitate that. But while I contract this muscle and I pull this hammer back, I'm lengthening the second muscle, or the antagonistic muscle, which provides a passive stretch to that muscle and the connective tissue surrounding that muscle. So you have active contraction to pull that hammer back, and then when you release that and you contract this muscle, utilize the elastic energy within that stretched muscle to facilitate that hammer coming down faster. So that's known as productive antagonism. So the active assistance to the task is the muscle contractions and the directions you're expecting it to go, and then the passive assistance is utilizing the stretched components of the muscle um, and the periarticular tissues within that muscle to facilitate, uh, or the elastic components within that muscle to facilitate 
hitting that hammer into the nail. Similar to that, or I wouldn't say similar to that, associated with that is a plyometric exercise. Um, and this is a specific contraction where a concentric contraction is immediately followed by an eccentric contraction. And so if you look at this individual here, he's jumping over a hurdle. We had a hurdler, hurdler, right? Just not a good one. Not a good one. So we got a crappy hurdler up in the front. Um, so this is probably not her. Um, but if you think about what's happening to this individual's quadriceps as he lands, so quadriceps in the front of the thigh there, as he lands, they're going to be lengthening. So it's an uh, eccentric contraction. And then in order to facilitate jumping into the next phase, you're going to have a concentric contraction in order to jump utilizing your quads. So you're going to be extending your knees. So it's an eccentric contraction immediately follows excuse me, a concentric contraction immediately follows an eccentric contraction. So here's your concentric contraction to jump and your eccentric contraction is before that. Plyometric contractions are able to produce greater force than concentric, isometric, or eccentric exercises due to the utilization of the elastic energy within the soft tissues. So just like the productive antagonism, there's gonna be an elastic component. So I'm gonna be stretching the muscle as it's lengthened eccentrically to facilitate the follow-up contraction, which is the concentric contraction. And also, when you go into a lengthening position of any muscle, you're going to have some resistance to that because if you were to just continue to lengthen a muscle without any resistance, you could dislocate your joint and hurt yourself. So as you go through a quick lengthening, your body's gonna say, hold on, I don't wanna dislocate. So you have a stretch reflex or a myotactic reflex to limit that movement as the joint goes to end range. And so you can utilize that to facilitate your concentric contraction. So both the elastic energy as that muscle is lengthened and the stretch reflex which says don't, length, don't lengthen too far because I don't want to hurt myself, both assist in that plyometric contraction which makes, the, which makes them greater, produce greater force than those other types of muscle contractions we talked about earlier. Now we do plyometric training. A couple guys do. What for? Basketball. Basketball. So jumping sports really common. What about you? Rehab. Rehab? Okay, yeah. So um, once you get to end stage rehab with lots of different joints, you can do that in the clinic as well. It's commonly done in the clinic, and it's good as for return to um, high-level activities, whether it's heavy lifting or sports or something like that. Any questions about muscle? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, on the previous slide, could you uh, possibly repeat what was produced greater just on the slide? So the plyometric contraction is able to produce greater, sorry, force than the rest of those other types of contractions. I should have put a blank there, but you, well, you're the only one that read the slide, so congratulations. <laughs> Any questions about muscle contractions, that type of stuff? Um, within the musculoskeletal system, Actually, we'll just talk about levers generally, and then we'll talk about the musculoskeletal system. So there's three classes of levers. Some people refer to them as lever. There's a soap also known as lever, or also known as lever, depending on how often you wash yourself and what country you're from and those types of things. Um, so first class of lever or lever, the axis of rotation is between the two opposing forces, and that's pictured here. So you have um, your axis of rotation between two opposing forces. So both of those forces are going in opposite directions or in the same direction, but because of that 
axis of rotation, they're going to be opposite to one another, um, and that defines a first class lever. Second class lever, the axis of rotation is at one end of a bone, or in this example, at one end of the um, system. And the muscle produces a larger leverage than the external force. So this is, sorry, I confused these. Um, okay, so this is uh, one force going in the opposite direction of another force. What I did was I put in musculoskeletal levers, and I didn't define it musculoskeletally here, and then I did define it musculoskeletally here. Um, so a second class laser ha has the axis of rotation at one end with the load and the effort in opposite directions on either side of that. And then a third class lever um, is just the opposite where you're in. External force is between the axis of rotation and the load. And we'll talk about these in the musculoskeletal system with diagrams that make it more straightforward than that. So in a first class lever, the axis of rotation is between the two opposing forces. And here I have the force of gravity acting on the center of mass of my head. And the axis of rotation is going to be at um, the atlanto-occipital joint or the part where the C1 vertebrae attaches to your skull. And then you're going to have the um, muscle force of your cervical extensors of cervical spine, which limit you going into cervical flexion. So the axis of rotation is between the two forces, which are opposite to one another. So if, this, if you didn't have any muscle contraction posteriorly, the force of gravity acting on your skull would cause you to go into flexion. So the axis of rotation. So, but if you do have muscle contraction posteriorly, you're going to be able to maintain your head upright and look around and do all those things that we all do all the time. Um, so the axis of rotation between the two forces, which will be acting an opposite, or which are opposite forces to one another. Um, not super common in the body, but this is an example where it is in the body. Second class lever, the axis of rotation is at one end of the bone and the muscle produces larger leverage than the external force. So here we have um, the axis of rotation and there's a shorter distance between the body weight as opposed to the muscle force. So the moment arm of the muscle force is greater than the moment arm, uh, the external moment arm which is related to that individual's body weight or the center of mass of the shank here. So the external force is closer to the axis of rotation than the internal force in a second class lever system. Again, this is not very common um, in the musculoskeletal system, but here's an example where that is the case. And in a third class lever, you have the internal force with a short moment arm um, closer to the axis of rotation than the external force with a longer moment arm. So that's a third class lever. This is the most common type within the musculoskeletal system um, because most muscles attach near to the joint center, which is where the axis of rotation is. And due to that, the mechanical advantage of a musculoskeletal lever is the ratio of its internal and external moment arms. So remember we talked before that torque is equal to force times its moment arm. And when we talk about the moment arm, there's an internal moment arm which is related to the muscle force and an external moment arm which is related to the effect of gravity on that segment or any additional masses associated with that segment. So your internal moment arm here um, is associated with the muscle force and you can see that it is short. And your external moment arm is related to the effect of gravity on the forearm. In addition to the forearm, there's the effect of the weight of the mass at the end of the forearm that the individual is holding in their hand. 
So the moment arm, or the mechanical advantage is the internal moment arm over the external moment arm. And like I said before, the third class lever is the most common lever system within the musculoskeletal system. So here we have mechanical advantage, or most commonly in the musculoskeletal system, the mechanical disadvantage, because usually your internal moment arm or the muscle force is going to be smaller than the external moment arm. And so when your internal moment arm is small and your external moment arm is large, you're going to have a poor mechanical advantage. So mechanical advantage, um, less than one, like we just talked about in this third class lever system, is going to have lower force potential than the mechanical advantage, which has a higher, or a system which, where mechanical advantage is greater than one, meaning that the internal moment arm in the second class lever system is greater than the external moment arm. So you're going to be able to produce more amounts of force. Um, in that type of system. So that's why I, who weigh 200 pounds, can stand on one foot and go up with my toes. My gastroc isn't substantially larger than my biceps, but the moment arm associated with my gastroc lifting up my 200 pounds is much greater than the moment arm associated with my body weight. Now if I were to put 200 pounds and a dumbbell on the ground and try and do a bicep curl, putting myself in a third class lever system where muscle force and my moment arm are small, muscle force small, moment arm small, I'm not going to be able to do a bicep curl with 200 pounds, or 20 pounds for that matter. Um, and that's largely related to the mechanical advantage or the mechanical disadvantage by me having a small moment arm of my biceps at the elbow as opposed to my gastroc at the foot relative to the external moment arm of the weight 200 pounds here with a large moment arm or 200 pounds here with a small moment arm. Does that make sense? So generally we're at a disadvantage. We talked about instantaneous axis rotation or the axis rotation last time and we know that torque is defined as the distance of the muscle force times its moment arm to the axis of rotation. In last class we said the axis of rotation changes as we go throughout a certain range of motion. So the instantaneous axis or center of rotation is just the spot where that, that rotation is at a certain joint angle. So it's a theoretical axis of rotation for a joint at a given joint position or a given joint angle. Because we said joints don't have congruent surfaces, right? They're not just perfect balls uh, and sockets. There's going to be some inconsistencies with that. And so because of that, the axis of rotation or the location of the axis of rotation changes based on that joint angle and based on how those um, bones line up to one another. An evolute is the path of serial locations of the instantaneous axis rotation if the joint exhibits rotation and glide, um, meaning that it doesn't have a fixed instantaneous axis of rotation. And that definition is a little bit confusing, so let me show you guys what I mean by that. Um, first, we're going to talk about how to determine the instantaneous axis of rotation. And let's see if I can get this to work. So in order to do that, is this going to work? No. Okay. So we're saying that this is the femur, this is the tibia, so we're looking at the knee, and this is my starting position, which is full knee extension. And I'm going to move my knee from full knee extension to 90 degrees of knee flexion. In order to determine my axis of rotation, I'm going to take my starting position here, and I'm going to mark that on my tibia. So I'm looking at that component of the tibia in that position, 
and on the same component of the tibia in my final position. Insert it. I don't know what I just did, but it's okay. Um, I'm going to do the same thing with the second part. So my A corresponds with my A as far as the position on the tibia, and my B corresponds with my B as far as the position on the tibia, but I have two different joint angles. When I connect A to A and B to B, and I take a perpendicular to those, that's when I find my instantaneous axis of rotation. So it's a perpendicular line from the two positions, from a line connecting the two positions of the two different joint angles. I'm going to give you guys another example so maybe we'll be, continue to get clearer. Um, but where these bisect is the instantaneous axis of rotation. Obviously I could have a perpendicular here, but that's going to be divergent, so there won't be any axis of rotation that way, so the axis of rotation is going to be, and we said it's usually somewhere near the center of the joint, um, and in this case it is, but it's not always that that's the case. You always want to pick points on the outside edge, it doesn't matter where you pick them. Like you, where you chose A and where you chose B. So if I picked C here and C here, yeah. and I connected those two, and I picked D here, and I picked D here, and I connected those two, and I picked a perpendicular, it's going to be the same. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it in my head. That's all right. That's why I got the pen. <laughs> the almighty pen. Everybody okay that? Yep. So is that like two different knee positions? Like yes. So your start, this is your starting position, full knee extension, and this is your second position, 90 degrees in knee flexion. Okay. And the axis rotation for that is right there within the femoral distal, distal femur. It's that spot there that's all covered up in my scribbles. Yes? No, but where you place the perpendicular, does that matter? Yeah, so yeah, that's right. So you're going to bisect the line, so it will be the center. Good question. I was going to have to draw that one out, but Dr. Williams saved the day. Any other questions? So you draw your perpendicular from the line, not from the axis of rotation, because it will confuse um, so here we have, it looks like a lower cervical or thoracic vertebrae, and we're going to have two joint positions again, so this is going to be my vertebral body, spine's process, so this individual is going into cervical or trunk flexion. So this is my starting position one, this is my finishing position two and I choose the same point on the vertebrae and connect those lines, just like we did previously. Take the bisecting line, oh. Oh shoot. So just like we did before, we have the first position, the second position for A, first position, second position for B. We're going to take the bisector of that line, a perpendicular to that, drop it down. For my A, same thing, bisect the line, drop it down. For my B, and then I got my instantaneous axis of rotation. Now this is a little bit different because the axis of rotation is not near the joint. But if you have to also appreciate that on top of this, there's going to be a bunch of vertebrae, and below this, there's going to be a bunch of vertebrae. So it's probably going to be near 
the vertebrae inferior to that, it's not going to be floating off in space, but it's not within the center of that joint or near that joint. Commonly it is, but here in this example it isn't. Yes? Yeah. It definitely will, and that's why it's the instantaneous axis of rotation because it's only for that joint angle. So every different angle is going to have a different instantaneous axis of rotation because it's going to change as we go through, and that leads into this slide here. So here we're at position one, and we're talking about position two, three, four, and five. And as I go, my instantaneous axial rotation, as marked by those circles in the middle, this is instantaneous axial rotation from position one, position two, position three, position four, and position five. So the instantaneous axis of rotation, which I say very quickly, depends on the position of the knee joint, and it changes as you go throughout a range of motion. I realize in machine, Dr. Washington already mentioned this, but you might not have caught it. We're talking about congruent right, joint ends and, and the radius of curvature stays the same all the way around. But at the end of the femur, as you know, that the curvature changes. So that's why the axis rotation is actually moving. But there is no motion, you gotta remember this, there's no motion at the axis itself. It's the movement of the segments relative to that point in space. So it could be in the body, outside the body. Um, so this is just another example, connect A and A and B and B, um, get the bisectors, bring those together, and here you can see again it's close toward the center of the joint where it most commonly is close to the center of the joint. Here's combining all that math onto one picture which is messy, but there's a bunch of lines in there, a bunch of bisectors and a bunch of perpendiculars, and then they, what they end up giving is what I just showed you here. So for position two, which is this joint angle here, your instantaneous axis of rotation is going to be that red dot. Position five, the instantaneous axis of rotation is going to be that red dot. And what evolute means, or the definition of evolute, is the position and changes of the instantaneous axis of rotation. So evolute is this sort of C that I kind of drew on there crappily that is supposed to approximate the changing instantaneous axes of rotation. Now, if this was a perfect hinge joint, it would not be evolute because there would be one axis of rotation for the whole joint. But because the joint surfaces are not congruent, like Dr. Williams said, the instantaneous axis of rotation is going to change, and that's what defines evolute, is the change in the position of the instantaneous axes of rotation. Yes? So the evolute is basically like a tracking arc? A tracking arc of the instantaneous axis of rotation, correct. So what would happen in a degenerative joint before a joint replacement was done, and it's unstable, what do you think the effect would that have on the motion? It probably wouldn't be smooth. During the motion, you'd have like a, instead of like an arc, it would have like a jump into it. Yeah, I wouldn't know. So it wouldn't be a smooth C, it would be a... Something like that, maybe. So it's not going to be smooth because the joint surfaces are degenerated. There's going to be friction associated with that. It's going to be not smooth, so there's going to be some change in that evolute arc. Any other questions? Again, I know this is a lot of material.
Yes? Translation is occurring simultaneously with rotation, right? So we're assuming that with this rotation, the normal translation, whatever is occurring, has occurred. So those occur at the same time. That's a good question. So rotation doesn't occur independent of translation. They occur together. Ten after, we will reconvene. Bringing endorsement to pay attention in my class. <laughs> See, now here's fat Newt. Doesn't he look a lot, I mean, like that's, that's not even close. <laughs> I mean, I understand like his hair is gonna change, like your hair falls out, whatever, but that is a substantial difference. Maybe it's because he's looking to the left in that picture and to the right. I, mean, I don't know. Barbara Streisand's got a good side of her face, too. Maybe that's just the bad side. <laughs> yeah, goiter. His head. Um, so he was a scientist and a math dude, lived a while ago. Um, most commonly or most known for discovering gravity, and he published that in um, this book that doesn't look appear to be English, um, but it's Latin or something along those lines. And they describe um, laws that deal with motion, and we're going to talk about motion related to human movement currently. So law one, two, and three, inertias, momentum or acceleration, and law of reaction is what we're going to spend our time discussing today. Um, first law of motion is the law of inertia. Uh, this is going to be when your body is in equilibrium, and inertia is the property of an object that makes an object resist both the initiation of movement and a change in that movement. Um, and this can occur linearly or rotationally. Um, and the linear sort of definition is a body remains at rest or in constant linear velocity except when compelled on by an external force to change its state. In rotation, um, the body remains at rest or in constant angular velocity by an axis of rotation unless compelled on by an external torque to change its state. So within the human body, primarily we're talking about rotations because we're talking about movements at joints. And so therefore we're talking about torques and not forces, and that's why it's angular velocity as opposed to linear velocity. So all that is the difference between linear and rotational movement because we're talking about torques usually in the human body as opposed to linear applications. Um, and this helps to explain the concept of equilibrium um, in a static position, meaning that you're not movement, or you're not moving and your velocity is equal to zero, or when you are moving but you're not accelerating. So you're moving at a constant pace, um, and your acceleration is zero. So it applies to static and dynamic conditions as long as there's no acceleration present. So inertia is directly proportional to mass. Remember the definition of inertia is the property of an object that makes it resist initiation of movement and a change in that movement. So if I'm going to initiate movement of that snowball, it's going to take a certain amount of torque if I'm going to use my shoulder to throw it. Whereas if I'm going to initiate movement of that snowball, it's going to take a whole lot more torque to initiate that movement, right? It's also going to take more torque or force to change the direction of that snowball than it is to change the direction of that snowball. 
So inertia is directly proportional mass. The bigger it is, the more inertia that it has, and the more difficult it is to change the direction of movement or to initiate movement of those objects. Anybody ever make a snowball that big? You probably that'd be like all the snow in Tennessee, right? <laughs> See, I grew up in Buffalo. We used to have those just rolling down the hills. It happens all the time. Um, within movement analysis, so now we're looking at human body and the movement of the human body. The position of the body is the result of the forces acting upon it. And if we're in a state of equilibrium, again, remember we're either not moving or we're not accelerating, we're moving at a constant speed. In those situations, the sum of the forces acting on the body or the sum of the torques acting on the body are going to be zero. And that's the definition of within a state of equilibrium, which is related to Newton's first law. Um, just as a reminder, torque again is force times the perpendicular moment arm and it's angular motion about the axis of rotation, so joint angles. And again, PT terms, biomechanic terms, that mean the same thing. So torque is the same as moment, is the same as moment of force. Those are all the same thing. Again, I don't know why. So each point, or each body, has a point called the center of mass. And at this point, um, where the mass is equally distributed around that object. When you guys are standing in an anatomical position, your center of mass, where your mass is equally distributed around your body, is just anterior to your sacrum, somewhere around S2. Um, and the position of the center of mass is important when you're dealing with controlled motion and balance. Um, so like I said before, the center of mass is the point around that, um, the point around which all masses move as though the mass were concentrated at one point. So if I wanted to hang myself from a rope, not to kill myself, but so that I was equally balanced, that anchor point would have to be just anterior to S2, and that would be my center of mass. And so when I'm hanging from that anatomical rope, I'm hanging from that. I would be equally balanced in all directions because the mass above that or superior to that would be equal to the mass inferior to that. Lateral from one side would be equal to lateral on the other side and anterior would be equal to the posterior side. So your mass is centered around that point. It's equal all around that. And so when we describe human movement, we can describe how the center of mass through, moves through space and that's how you as a body will move through space. Now we can talk about it as the whole individual so my center of mass is located just anterior to S2, just as your guys, somewhere in that range. Or I can talk about it relative to a segment. So earlier when we talked about the vector quantities, I talked about the center of mass of the shank. I was talking about the position on your shin where the center of mass is centered around that, just that segment, so just the, your shin. So it can be your whole body or it can be just a component of your body. Um, just anterior to sacrum. And so here's it from the side, it's balanced uh, anterior posterior. From the front, it's balanced lateral to lateral. And from the top, it's balanced above and below. And when you are in stance, so if I'm standing here, if my center of mass is not within my base of support when looking from above, I'm going to be off balance. So if I go to shift this way, my center of mass, which is about S2, is shifting with me. When my center of mass goes lateral to my foot, I'm going to either have to step or I'm going to fall over. 
So you want to maintain your center of mass within your base of support. So when my feet are together, my base of support, the area, the area between my feet is relatively small. So as I go to lean this way, I can only go so far, and I have to step where I'm going to fall because my center of mass moves lateral to my base of support. If I increase my base of support, I can lean a whole lot more, and my center of mass doesn't come lateral to that, so I can maintain my balance. Does that make sense? So when you have old folks in the nursing home that are walking like this, and they're always afraid that they're going to fall, there's a reason that they're afraid they're going to fall, right? Their base of support is really small, so you work on lining their stride and things like that. So it all comes back to PT somehow. Sometimes it's hard to see those connections, but it does. Um, center of mass isn't fixed, and it changes as your body position changes, because again, it's going to be the point where your body is balanced around that. So if I'm in anatomical position, it's at S2, but if I were to change my body position, my center of mass can change. And you can see here, when an individual is bent over, their center of mass isn't even within the anatomical space of their body, but it's a theoretical space where the mass is equally distributed and that position looking lateral, anterior, posterior. So the masses are equal in that way. Or if you were to bend to the side, or I don't know if that person's doing a bad version of the limbo or something. Um, but the center of mass does not have to reside within the body. It's just a theoretical point where all the masses are equal around it. And realize that's not just anterior to S2, right? that's only when you're in an anatomical position. Um, so center of mass, center of mass of the body, center of mass of the thigh, center of mass of the shank. So you have the whole body and then you have different components. And it will change um, based on the body position. So here we have the center of mass of the thigh. This is going to be the center of mass of the leg, center of mass of the shank, center of mass of the foot. And then here, thigh, shank, foot. And notice the center of mass of the whole leg is, again, not within the anatomical position of the body. It's in space. And it's in a different position than it is on the other leg. So it doesn't have to reside within the body itself, the physical body. And it changes based on the position of the body. And I have a video with this. And this is a video that you guys saw last week, or Tuesday, I should say. It's the pole vaulter again. And what I did a poor job of describing last week, but I think I can do a better job of now, is when they bring up the motion analysis segment. So here, the individual is getting up and ready to go over. I'm going to see if I can pause it at a good time. So right about there. So you can see, it. Now, this is great, so his hands and his head and his trunk are on one side of the bar, lower than the bar, his butt is above the bar, and his feet and his legs are on the other side of the bar, below the bar. Now a good, skilled pole vaulter will have their center of mass be inferior to the bar by bending their body. So you look at the kinematics, see how they move, and remember, the center of mass can change because it's just the place where it's a um, theoretical spot where the masses are equal around that. So I can change my body position. And just like I did here, center of mass is not within my body, but it's lateral to my body. So imagine that we just turn this 90 degrees. That's the bar. The center of mass is going to be below the bar while the body's above the bar. So it takes less force 
to get your body over that because your center of mass doesn't have to go as high. So someone with crappy technique, like the pole vaulting equivalent of the hurdler that we have, <laughs> is going to have their center of mass go above the bar. Sorry, I don't mean to make fun. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, does that make sense? So skilled high jumpers, skilled pole vaulters, they will contort their body, they will kinematically move their body so that their center of mass will stay below the bar the whole time. And that, which, that is what makes them efficient along with a lot of muscles and things to get them up that high to begin with. But what distinguishes the best at a very high level is their ability to position themselves so their center of mass is as inferior as possible. And if you look at here, they're talking about center of gravity, which is equivalent to center of mass, just poor terminology. Um, but if they're plotting that, what you're going to see, or what you should see, is that their center of mass is below the height of the bar. And I think that's what they're actually looking at in this motion analysis, is they're trying to find out, you know, based on their position. So they're looking at their position um, on a model, their position on a video. So it's going to be a coaching type thing. He says, okay, you can see here, I don't know, I'm not just going to make this stuff up here, but your hips aren't flexed enough. So they're too high up in the air, and therefore your center of mass is higher, and your center of mass went above the bar. If you flexed your hips more, or went into more of a V position, your center of mass would be lower, and you could do that more efficiently. I don't know if that was described well or not, but that's what I got. Does that make sense? So I mean, there's cool applications. You just have to apply them. Funny how that works. Um, oh, shoot. All right, where are we? Okay. So we talked about inertia before related to the mass, and it's changing um, the ability to initiate movement or change movement. The mass moment of inertia um, of a body is a quantity that indicates its resistance to change in angular velocity. So it has the term moment, which is equal to what? Torque. So we're talking about rotation now. So indicate resistance to change in angular velocity, angular meaning rotational. So again, again, there's lots of terms, but as they come together, moment means torque, therefore you're thinking rotation, and then you can start thinking about joint movements. Um, so the mass moment of inertia depends on the mass of the body as well as the, dis the distribution of masses around the axis of motion. Um, and the definition, or the mathematical equation, is the sum of masses times their radius squared. And will this let me write in here today or no? Okay. So I'm going to subject you guys to some, maybe not. Do you have a marker, Dr. Williams? Okay. Uh, just a dry erase marker. I know this is a classroom and everything, but I guess they don't store those around here. So I'm going to increase your guys' tuition a little bit so we can get some markers. Um, so what we're going to talk about is we're going to do a little bit of math here. And so here is my equation. So the mass times its radius squared. So the radius is the distance from the axis of rotation, which is this red line. And I'm going to have two masses in my object. Each of those masses is one kilogram and each mass is 0.1 meters from the axis of rotation. Um, so I'm going to take that, essentially double it. So each mass is 0.1, and if I had a thing I could do it, but I don't, so. Um, fail? 
Alright. So point one times one squared is what? Yes? I have a drive. I do too. Okay. Here, just check it out here. Oh. That could be injurious. Okay, so we're not a baseball player, not a hurdler. We're working on it. We're working on it. Okay. So we got point one. Can you guys see over there? Can you guys see up and then it's kind of okay. Um, so each mass, so the mass times the radius squared. Uh, so let me start over here. Mass is one kilogram, one kg, times the radius squared. And the radius squared is point one squared is equal to what? Math majors, math majors. Right? Yeah. And that's going to be the same for both of these because they're equidistant from the axis of rotation. So we do that times two. <laughs> <laughs> Students carry them around. Who knew? <laughs> oh, this one, that doesn't show up back there. Oh, does it? Not, they didn't tell you, but you can't see it from back there. Maybe you can't see because you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to go green. Whose was this? That's how you throw it. <laughs> What's that? Is that, that one squared? Yes, 0.1 squared. Sorry, that's my crappy scribbling. So what you get is your, uh, your moment of inertia for this condition here is equal to 0 0.02. Can you guys see that in the back? I got the green one now, so we'll see if that works. Anyone here colorblind? Because this wouldn't be helpful. Can you see my green? Okay. Notice how I didn't really accommodate to that, but I said, well, too bad. Uh, yes? No, the radius I was squaring. Did I do that incorrectly? No. I s uh, so the radius is point 0.1. Okay. Um, so that's this mass rotating around this axis of rotation, and we get a moment of inertia equal to 0 0.02. Everyone, okay there. So now we're going to do the same thing around a different axis of rotation. And so each mass is separated uh, by 0.2 from each other and the axis by 0.1 meters. And the masses are the same. So all we did was change the axis of rotation. The distance from the axis of rotation has not changed from the side to the middle. So we're going to get what? Same the same thing, correct. Because the distance from the axis of rotation to here is 0.1 meters, here 0.1 meters, and the masses are the same. So in this condition, the mass moment of inertia again is 0 0.02. Everyone follow my math there, even though I didn't write it down. Okay. Do you care about units? Not right now. Engineer. <laughs> so now I've chained my axis of rotation again. I'm moving the same mass with the same centers of mass. Um, but now these are separated by 0.2. So this is going to be, we got more colors? Thanks. Um, so here we're going to have 0.1. So did it. All right. So we got the mass. So we got one kilogram times 0.1 squared. It's going to give us 0.01 again. Sorry. And then we have the second mass, which is one kilogram. But this time it's going to be 0.2 meters because the distance from the axis of rotation increases. Times 0.2 squared. What's 0.2 squared? 0.4. 0.4 times 1. 
So when I sum those together, I get 0.05. Yes? Would the, uh, would the mass one, since it's two, uh, 0.2 meters from mass two, wouldn't it be 0.3? Oh, yes, you are correct. Engineer also? Just someone that pays attention, that's what I like. <laughs> All right, so we're going to say this is 0.3, because these are separated by 0.2, and this is 0.1. So good catch, that's 0.3, and then we're at 0.09, and then our sum is going to be 0.10. Can you turn the light on up there? I can. Is that helpful? Yeah, no. Better. Okay. <laughs> better, not great. Better, not great. All this is telling us, let's try and do a little math, which can't be seen, so it's not really helpful, is that it takes more force to rotate about this axis because the masses are further away than it does this axis or this axis. That's the whole intention behind this mathematical activity. So basically, the further, the further mass is away from the axis, the more force you're going to have to exert to move it. Correct. And we're going to give you guys some practical examples that may help to reinforce what I failed to do just previously. So, anyone here a diver? Do you guys do anything fun? <laughs> All right. I don't know if diving's fun, but you can do it with speedo. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about mass inertia, and we're going to talk about rotation. So we're talking about rotation. We're talking about human rotation, the whole body. And you can do different dives, and I'm not a diver, but you look him, I looked him up, and the far left is known as a tuck position dive. Then you go into a pike position dive, and then you go into a layout. Any gymnasts? Same terminology? Yeah, so same terminology, gymnasts and divers. Divers are really just crappy gymnasts. They couldn't make it on the mat um, most of the time. Anyways, so I have a couple of videos here, and we're going to see how quick these divers can go when they have a tuck position, a pike position, and a layout position. And based on what we just did, I'm hoping that you guys know because their mass is closer to the axis of rotation, they're going to spin faster here than they do here than they do here. So here we have Andrew will be doing a 105 front two and a half somersault tuck 2.4 It doesn't matter if you can hear what they're saying or not. Just look at how fast he's so he's doing a two and a half somersault tuck. You can just read that up here. How quickly he rotates in a tuck position. That wasn't a great dive because of all the splash. But <laughs> he rotated pretty quickly around his axis of rotation, which changed. Now if we go to a pike position, this is going to be a two and a half pike, so it's a similar dive, but it took a lot longer for him to spin around his axis of rotation because he needed more force to do that, and he got some good cheers. <laughs> and then when you go into a layout, you're not going to be able to get more than one because you need a whole lot of force to do that. And so you just get one rotation on the layout because it takes more force to do that because the masses are further from the axis of rotation. Does that make more sense now? Even though my math example kind of failed. Okay. So now when I was thinking about this, any skiers? Snowboarding. Snowboard. Okay, I'll take snowboarding. All right, a couple of you guys do something worthwhile. Um, so skiers, they used to have it, and I don't know if, oh, did I lose my link? Ah, uh, fail. All right, never mind. So skiers can 
what I wanted to show you guys, um, let me see this. Never mind. What I was going to show you guys is that skiers can twist faster than they can flip. And they used to have this thing in the Olympics called aerial ski jumping, where they do some crazy stuff off this huge kicker. And they could do like five twists, but only two flips in one jump. But because it didn't show up, you guys don't get to see it. Anyways, but the reason they could do that was because the axis of rotation, the masses were closer to the axis of rotation when you twist vertically as opposed to doing a front flip. That's why when most of you guys can probably jump in the air and do a 360 like this. That's not bad. <laughs> but if I tried to jump and do a flip in the air and land on my feet again, I would just hurt myself. Right? Masses are closer. Plus, I'm long and skinny. It helps well. So masses are closer to the axis of rotation than if I tried to come into a tuck and do a flip. It's just an injury waiting to happen. So I'm not going to attempt that. Um, Mass moment of inertia again, so we can look at it related to this bat. And here we have on the Y1 is one axis of rotation, Y2 is the second axis of rotation. So when you're a little kid and you're playing t-ball or baseball or softball for the first time, what does your coach tell you to do with the bat? Choke up. Choke up. Why are you choking up? It's easier to swing. You can swing faster because you have a smaller what? What's the equation? Radius. You have a smaller radius, and you're squaring that radius, so it's even amplified um, the effect of radius. So you're decreasing the radius um, to each of these masses or to the bat's center of mass total, and therefore it's easier to swing. So that's why you're choking up because you're decreasing the radius in the mass moment of inertia. Now note here, the bat's center of mass is not equidistant linearly on the bat, but it's closer to the, this end of the bat. Why is that? Because there's more mass towards that end, correct. So the center of mass is the center of mass, not the linear distance. It's not in the middle here to here. It's the middle of the mass. And because the mass is more concentrated here than it is here, it's going to be closer to that end. Same thing applies to your body. Um, we just talked about that. So mass, probably should have put this in earlier. Inertial properly relates to the amount of matter in an object. And weight is the effect of gravity on that matter. Questions about law number one? Newton's second law, the law of momentum. So this is when um, velocity is not equal to zero and it's not constant, so you are accelerating or decelerating. In a linear situation, sum of force is equal to mass times acceleration, and it's directly proportional to the force causing it to take place in the same direction with the force acting inversely proportional to the mass of the body. Force is equal to mass times acceleration is the main thing to take out of that. Now rotationally, torque is equal to the moment of inertia times its angular acceleration. So again, it's the same thing. We got moment here, so we know we're talking about rotation. We are talking rotation, so it's going to be torque. And then it's angular acceleration because angular indicates that we're moving throughout a rotational um, component. So the main thing across the bottom is here, force equals mass times acceleration. Um, we will talk about that a little bit. But in the body, it's more torque times the uh, moment of inertia and it's uh, times, it, times its angular acceleration. Um, this is from your textbook, and this is, I think, from the older version of your textbook. So you have a big table like this, which talks about um, comparing linear applications to rotational applications, so forces to torques. Um, it may be something you guys want to look at related to testing as far as understanding the differences between forces and torques and just lines them up. 
across as they go in the rows. So when you're talking about impulse, it's force times time. When you're talking about rotational impulse, that's linearly. When you're talking about rotational impulse, it's torque times time because, again, it's rotational. So if you guys understand all these differences on this table, you're going to understand um, rotation versus linear applications, and you should have no problem understanding that from a testing perspective. So how does this apply into a clinic? Why do I care about acceleration in the clinic? So myotest, and we have a couple of these floating around somewhere. Have you played with these, Dr. Williams at all? We have them somewhere, I'm not quite sure, but we do have a couple in the department if you guys want to see what they look like. But there is implications for rehabilitation and utilizes some of the equations that we're going to talk about. So I'll let this guy do the demo, and I need volume on this one. Can you guys hear that? Yeah, that's not the best. So I have the biotechnic here. I'm going to go ahead and power it on. Can't hear it. I'm going to select the test. It's not. It's just running through the laptop. That's the problem. I may call that a failed example also. Um. What he was showing there is that you can utilize this small piece of equipment, which is an accelerometer, within the clinic, and you can compare accelerations side to side, or you could compare accelerations during rehab. So, for example, what he's showing is you had a leg press, and he's sitting in his leg, so there's a bunch of weights attached to his leg on the machine by a couple of pulleys, right? Just changing the direction, though, because they were fixed pulleys, not movable. Everybody um, and so the right leg was the injured leg, and the left leg was the uninjured leg. And using that accelerometer, he did a quick kick with his injured leg and saw the acceleration associated with that. Um, from that, we can determine, or you can determine the mass of the body or the mass of the segment, and you can get the force associated using a little math. And then you can compare that to the left side. So you can compare forces, you can compare accelerations, and use that either from a time standpoint. So first day of rehab, I was able to accelerate this quickly. And now I've been done much rehab and I can accelerate faster than that. Or I can compare my injured to my uninjured leg. So it's just applications to the clinic that I failed to show you guys. Um, so manipulating force can be um, manipulated by changing the component quantities. Anybody a boxer? I keep asking these questions. I keep failing. If you guys want to like send me an email of things that you do, I can incorporate that into my lectures and that would be fine. I, I keep trying different stuff. Um, anyways, so anyone no you guys aren't boxers, so we figure that out. So this is a picture of a jab in boxing. And the idea behind a jab is it's not gonna use all your mass of your body to hammer him or her. But you're trying to do it as quickly as possible. So you're using, utilizing acceleration. Chances are you're not going to knock an individual out with a jab. But if you do it often enough, you will. So you're trying to apply some force to that individual, but you're using acceleration to do that. As a, excuse me. As opposed to this, 
So you can see this, he's just using his arms, just quick boom to the side of the face. Now that would knock me out, but not that guy. Um, so now this guy, you can see he's using his whole body. He's got his trunk leaned forward, his arms extended. That's a cross, so he's coming across his body to hit there. That doesn't look fun, but he's using his mass to impart that force. So you can impart force different ways, either through acceleration or through mass. Does that make sense for you non-boxing people? What about UFC, any of those guys in here? All right, <laughs> impulse momentum relationships. So sometimes the law of acceleration is known as the law of um, impulse or momentum, and that's because these two are the same. I'm gonna sort of describe to you how they are the same. So the definition of momentum is mass times velocity, and there's the units there, don't worry too much about that. Um, the definition of impulse is force applied over a period of time. So it's force times time, or force times a change in time. An impulse describes the interaction between force and time and how that can change the momentum of a body. So here's the picture of a young man who looks like he's going to catch a water balloon. <laughs> Did anyone ever play the game where you throw the water balloon over the volleyball net and you, if it splashes on you, you lose points and all that type of thing? Right? Actually, he's not going to catch it. Those aren't his hands out. It's true, but he's got the best face. It is. <laughs> I know, I realized that this morning too when I was looking at this. I'm like, he's not actually catching it. He's just scared to death. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Maybe he's allergic to water, <laughs> allergic to green latex, who knows. So, but anyways, if you guys are playing that water balloon game, how do you catch the water balloon without having a wet t-shirt contest? You go with it, right? And what does that do? What are you manipulating in this equation? Time, right? So you're increasing the change in time, so the force associated is going to be less. If you have stiff hands you got a wet shirt. But if you have soft hands and you increase the time, you're going to have a dry shirt and you're not going to have points scored against you. Um, so that's the impulse momentum relationship. The mass of the object isn't going to change. The velocity of the object isn't going to change. You want to change the velocity by increasing the amount of time associated with that. Um, so the impulse momentum equation is this. So force times time is equal to mass times the change in velocity. It can also be force times the change in time is equal to mass times the change in velocity. Um, what we talked about before being the law of acceleration, and so why are these the case? We talked about impulse is equal to force times time, or F times T, and the change in momentum, so here, F times T, impulse, change in momentum here is the mass, which doesn't get a change from velocity one to velocity two, so your mass is constant, and the change in velocity, so velocity one and velocity two. Therefore, force times time is equal to mass times velocity 2 minus mass times velocity 1. So that's where you get from there. Then if you solve for F, take time out of the equation and um, take M, uh, mass, out of the velocity. So force equal to mass times the change in velocity divided by time. If you have change in velocity divided by time, um, equals acceleration. So force equals mass. And this whole scribble there is equal to acceleration. So it's just a mathematical process which relates acceleration to the impulse momentum equation. So we're looking at the same thing. So therefore, force equals mass times acceleration. Now impulse, another way to talk about impulse as opposed to catching water balloons is hitting a baseball. Anybody baseball players? T-ball? <laughs> All right. Softball? All right, finally. All right, 
So if you want to hit a ball far, you want to change the impulse on that, you can either do it through a large amount of force or through a big increase in time. Now, if you guys, who's got the most home runs in Major League Baseball juiced up on roids? Barry Bonds, right? And when you see Barry Bonds, his arms are used to be as big as my legs, right? His testicles used to be tiny little things because of all the steroids that he used. But we're not talking about that. So he was a very big guy who could produce a lot of force. And he hit a lot of balls really far that he pulled out to right field, left field. I'm not sure which. Which is right or left? Is it when you're facing? Yeah, so then he hit it to right field because he was lefty. Um, but I can, I can hit just as far as he can if I'm using this thing. Has anyone ever seen one of these things? They use it for fielding practice. This is like an elastic net. And so when you go for fielding practice, I know no, no one ever used these. It's like a tennis racket. It's the size of a tennis racket, and you just throw the ball up, and you not hard at all, but the elastic catches the ball and then shoots it like a slingshot. And so it shoots the ball out really far, and you can practice catching and doing all the stuff that you do in baseball. What you're doing is you're increasing the time that the ball is in contact with the surface area, which is causing that force. So you can either increase the time by using elastic, or you can increase the force by using steroids. And both of those are going to increase your impulse. Choose your injections wisely. <laughs> so how does this apply to clinic injuries, all those types of things, or am I just up here yammering away? So when I'm landing from a jump, does anyone here do parkour? <laughs> oh. It's also known as natural running. Oh. All right. So parkour is this pretty cool thing. I got a video that you guys can see, I'm pretty sure. Um, do I have a video? Yes, I do. Okay. So when you're landing from a jump, just a regular jump, not like a sick jump like that, you're using the lower extremity muscles, quadriceps, gastroxoleus, um, to decrease the joint reaction forces by increasing the time that that force is applied to your joints. So the muscles are lengthening. Um, as you're contracting eccentrically, the definition of eccentric muscle contraction is the muscle is lengthening. So as they're lengthening, what you're doing is you're trying to increase the time associated with landing that jump. Now if I land it so that you're decreasing the force on your body or the joint reaction force, if I were to stand up on this table and jump down and land like that, the force is going to be really high because my time is going to be really low, right? Stiff-legged. Whereas if I were to jump off this table and land like this, my force is going to be low because my time is high. Everyone okay there? Um, so your muscles are the ones that are taking that force away as opposed to your joints, which is good because it saves your joints. Clinical relevance. Um, also, if it happens really quickly, a large amount of force, you get hurt like a big lineman landing on your leg or something like that. Um, so by increasing the time, the duration of impact decreases the impulse of the impact and therefore decreases your likelihood of injury, whether it's to the joint um, or compressive forces. And I have a video of parkour. So parkour is like, it's called natural running or some other things. I guess it started in France, so maybe it's like parkour. Uh, but what these guys do is they jump and do flips and they run around on like street cars and parking garages and do all this crazy stuff. So I have a little video of a guy doing parkour and he's uh, going to jump off of a roof. And this is what they're all about. Jumping from high distances and increasing the time associated with their landing so they don't get hurt. So he had eccentric contraction of his squads. Now he's got POV on that. And then he rolls to increase the time associated with stopping that force. 
His friend's like, dude, you are awesome. <laughs> but that was in French, so it would be like something else that I don't know how to say. Um, so that's parkour, and that is how it relates to the clinic. Questions about impulse momentum, protecting your joints by increasing the time associated with an impact. We can also graph um, the impulse momentum relationship, and we talked, or I showed you guys a video last class of a runner and the ground reaction forces when they were running, so the vertical ground reaction forces, um, which is just the impact of their foot, just the ground um, response to that. And vertical ground reaction forces are the easiest ones to picture in your head. But also, there's reaction forces anteriorly and posteriorly associated with running as well, because when I'm running, I do a heel strike, my heel is going posterior, so my ground reaction force is going to be anterior. It's going to be equal and opposite, right? So there's anterior, posterior, and medial lateral as well. And you can graph these. So what this is, this is just time across your x-axis, and this is your ground reaction force on the y-axis. But here is going to be anterior ground reaction force, and here's going to be your posterior ground reaction force. And force times time is uh, what we're looking at. So you got your impulse here, which is your posteriorly directed impulse. And your impulse here, so it's force, which is on the y-axis, times time. It's the area under the curve in each of these directions. This is posteriorly directed, and this is anteriorly directed. Given this graph, is this individual accelerating, because we're talking about second law, or decelerating? Decelerating. He's decelerating, or she's decelerating. Why? Because you've got a higher posteriorly directed. Correct. So my posteriorly directed impulse is greater than my anteriorly directed impulse. So that person is going to be slowing down or decelerating because they have a greater posterior directed impulse than anterior. Does everyone follow that? Um, work and energy. Work is equal to force times the distance that is applied. If we're talking rotational, it's torque times the change in angle in degrees. Um, the units are a newton meter, which is also known as the joule. Therefore, if I'm doing an isometric contraction, how much work am I doing? None. Why not? Because you're not moving a distance, right? Work is torque times the number change in angle degrees of that joint. So there's no joint movement, so therefore if I have an isometric contraction, I'm not doing any work. Which is kind of interesting for those folks that exercise with isometrics because they're not doing anything. But we'll talk about that in class later. Um, and you can record that over time and that would be what's known as power. So power is just the work you do over a certain period of time um, and then substituting those out. Power is equals force times distance over time and then therefore power is equal to force times velocity. It's just substituting in from above. So those are related. Um, so what does that mean clinically? Well, in lab next week, you guys will see a demonstration from the isokinetic machine. Has anyone dealt with isokinetics in the past? Bidex machine, a Cybex machine, Humac, a couple folks have. Um, we're going to have a lab demo. We're going to talk about different types of muscle contractions on the isokinetic machine. But this is just a sample report from an isokinetic machine. Sometimes you'll see this used in the clinic. And what you're able to do is you're able to record peak torque for a bunch of different muscles depending on how you set up the machine. You can look at various parts of the body. So um, here's extension torque and here's flexion torque on the right and left side. Um, the right side is in blue and the left side is in red. And because of 
the manipulation of these equations from above, because we have torque, we can look at the time that that occurs and we can get work. And because we have work, um, and we have the distance over which that joint moved because we can measure the joint angle, then we can get power. And these are used in rehabilitation and looking at um, most commonly ACL injuries and comparing, just like here, your right to your left and seeing how strong you are in your injured side or your surgically repaired side to your non-surgically repaired side. Or you look at the relationship between your quadriceps and your hamstrings. And so you want your hamstrings to have some percentage related to your quadriceps to indicate that your knee is going to be stable so that you can return to high functional activities like sporting events. <laughs> so isokinetics, take all the stuff in, you have torque, you do a little math, you get work, you do a little math, you get power. And these, there are normal values that she can compare these to for return to sport and those types of things clinically. So it's not just me talking a bunch of math up here, which it is, uh, but there is applications to the clinic that you guys will see if you work in those types of settings. Third law is the law of action and reaction. There's again, there's gonna be a linear and a uh, rotational component. For every force, there's an equal and opposite directed force. I'm sure you guys have heard that before. For every torque, there's an equal and oppositely directed torque. Um, the effect of the action depends on the object's mass and ground reaction forces, which we've talked about vertically, and then just anterior and posterior are a good example of these. So as, my, as I land in gait, as my heel goes down, the force of my body is equally reacted by the ground reaction force coming up in an equal and opposite direction. Here you go again. So you've got an individual walking. You've got a ground reaction force directed vertically and posterior, and that foot force directed inferior and anterior. So they're going to be equal and opposite. Um, and then here we have a resultant ground reaction force. So here's my ground reaction force. This person's going forward, so the force is going forward and inferior. Ground reaction force superior and posterior. And we talked earlier, long ago, beginning of the lecture, like two hours ago. Half you guys are forgot all of already. Um, but we can get a resultant force, right? For the ground reaction force. The ground reaction force, this is going to be your resultant force, which isn't perfectly vertical because there is a posteriorly directed component to that. Remember the right triangle we talked about earlier? So this ground reaction force line should approximate moving this up here and come at that angle there. And if you could follow what I just said, you're sweet. <laughs> and if you can't, we're going to do lots of practice on free body diagrams next class, and then we'll have some labs um, doing construction decomposition. So if you don't get it today, you will get more and reinforced into the future. Questions? <laughs>